0: that there is no deliverance from sin, no salvation for your soul by anything you can do? Nor was there any physician in Syria who could effect a cure, no matter what fee he offered, what crack he applied to, none was of any avail. And such is the case of each of us by nature. Our spiritual malady lies deeper than any human hand can reach unto. Our condition is too desperate for any religious practitioner to cure. Man can no more deliver himself or his fellows from the guilt and defilement of sin than he can create a world. Most solemnly was that fact shattered forth under the system of Judaism. No remedy was provided for this fearful disease under the Mosaic law. No directions were given to Israel's priesthood to make use of any application either outward or inward. The leper was shut up entirely to God. All the high priests of the Hebrews could do was to examine closely the various symptoms of the complaint. Have the leper excluded from his fellows and leave him to the disposal of the Lord. Whether the sufferer was healed or not, whether he lived or died, was wholly to be decided by the Almighty. So it is in grace. There is no possible salvation for any sinner except at the hands of God. There is no other possible alternative. No other prospect before the sinner than to die a wretched death and enter a hopeless eternity unless distinguishing mercy intervenes, unless a sovereign God is pleased to work a miracle of grace within Him. It is entirely a matter of His will and power. Again we ask, do you realize that fact, my hearer? God is your maker and he is the determiner of your destiny. You are clay in his hands to do with as he pleases. Second, its contributor. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid, and she waited on Naaman's wife. Second Kings 5 2. In one of the many seasons in which the name of Jehovah was blasphemed among the heathen through the unfaithfulness of his ancient people, a little Jewish maid was taken captive by the Syrians. In the dividing of the spoils, she fell into the hands of Naaman, the commander of the Syrian forces. Observe the series of contrasts between them. He was a Gentile, she a hated Jewess. He was a great man, she but a little maid. He was Naaman, she was left unnamed. He was captain of the host of Syria, while she was captive in the enemy's territory. But he was a leper, while strange to say she was made a contributing instrument Unto his healing. It has ever been God's way to make use of the despised and feeble, and often in circumstances which seemed passing strange to human wisdom. Let us take note how this verse teaches us a most important lesson in connection with the mysteries of divine providence and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid. Visualize the scene. One fair morning the peace of St. Mary was rudely broken. The tramp of a hostile army was heard in the land. A cruel foe was at hand. The Syrians had invaded the country, and heaven was silent. No scourge from God smote the enemy. Instead, he was suffered to carry away some of the covenant people. Among the captives was a little maid. That may mean little to us today, but it meant much to a certain people at that day. A home was rendered desolate. Seek to enter into the feelings of her parents as their young daughter was ruthlessly snatched from them. Think of the anguish of her poor mother, wondering what would become of her. Think of her grief-stricken father in his helplessness, unable to rescue her. Endeavor to contemplate what would be the state of mind of the little girl herself as she was carried away by heathen to a strange country. Bring before your mind's eye the whole painful incident until it lives before you. Do you not suppose, dear friend, that both the maid and her parents were greatly perplexed? Must they not have been sorely tried by this mysterious providence? Why, oh why? Must have been asked by them a hundred times. Why had God allowed the joy of their home to be shattered, passing strange if the maiden reflected at all? must. She had thought her lot. Why was she a favorite daughter of Abraham, now a servant in Naaman's household? Why this enforced separation from her parents? Why this cruel captivity? Such questions she might have asked at first and asked in vain. Ah, does the hearer perceive the point we are leading up to? It is this, God had a good reason for this trial. He was shaping things in His own unfathomable way for the outworking of His good and wise purpose. There is nothing happens in this world by mere chance. A predestinating God has planned every detail in our lives. Our times are in His hand. Psalm 31.15 he hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. Acts 17.26 What a resting place for our poor hearts does that grand truth supply. It was God who directed that this little maid of Israel should become a member of Naaman's household. And Why? that she might be a link in the chain which ended not only in the healing of his leprosy, but also most probably in the salvation of his soul. Here then is the important lesson for us to take to heart from this incident. Here is the light which it casts upon the mysterious ways of God and providence, He has a wise and good reason behind each of the perplexing and heart-exercising trials which enter our lives. The particular reason for each trial is frequently concealed from us at the time it comes upon us. If it were not, there would be no room for the exercise of faith and patience in it. But just as surely as God had a good reason for allowing the happiness of this Hebrew household to be darkened, so He has in ordering whatever sorrow has entered your life. It was the sequel which made manifest God's gracious design. And it is for this sequel you must quietly and trustfully wait. This incident is among the things recorded in the Old Testament for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Romans 15, 4 And she said unto her mistress, Would God my Lord were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. 2 Kings 5, 3 This is surely most striking and blessed. It had been natural for this young girl to have yielded to a spirit of enmity against the man who had snatched her away from her own home, to have entertained hatred for him, and to have been maliciously pleased he was so afflicted in his body. The fall not only alienated man from God but it radically changed his attitude toward his fellows, evidenced at a very early date by Cain's murder of his brother Abel. Human depravity has poisoned every relationship. In their unregenerate state, God's own people are described as hateful and hating one another. Titus 3.3 But instead of cherishing ill feelings against her captor, this little maid was concerned about his condition and solicitous about his welfare. Apparently she had been brought up in the nurture of the Lord, and the seeds planted by godly parents now sprang up and bore fruit in her young life. Beautiful is it to here behold grace triumphing over the flesh, How this little maid puts us to shame. How sinfully have we conducted ourselves when the providence of God crossed our wheels and brought us into situations for which we had no liking. What risings of rebellion within us. What complaining at our circumstances. So far from being a blessing unto those we came into contact with we were a stumbling block unto them. Has not both writer and hearer much cause to bow the head in shame at the recollection of such grievous failures? Was not this child placed in uncongenial circumstances and a most trying situation? Yet there was neither murmurings against God nor bitterness toward her captor. Instead, She bore faithful testimony to the God of Israel and was moved with compassion toward her leprous master. What a beautiful exemplification of the sufficiency of divine grace. She remembered the Lord in the house of her bondage and spoke of his servant the prophet. How we need to turn this into earnest prayer, that we too may glorify the Lord in the fire's Isaiah 24.15 No position would seem more desolate than this defenseless maiden in the house of her proud captors, and no situation could promise fewer openings for usefulness. But though her opportunities were limited, she made the most of them. She despised not the day of small things, but sought to turn it to advantage, She did not conclude it was useless for her to open her mouth, nor argue that an audience of only one person was not worth addressing. No, in a simple but earnest manner she proclaimed the good news that there was salvation for even the leper, for the very name Elisha meant the salvation of God. These words will be heard by more than one who is now serving as a kitchen maid. Is there not here a word for them? Not that we suggest for a moment they should assume the office of preachers or speak frequently about spiritual things to their mistress. Nevertheless, if you have a compassionate regard for her good and look to the Lord for guidance he may well be pleased to give you a word in season for her and make the same fruitful. And one went in and told his Lord, saying, Thus and thus said the maid that is of the land of Israel. Verse 4. A very incidental and apparently trivial statement is this. Yet being a part of God's eternal truth, It is not to be passed over lightly and hurriedly. We are ever the losers by such irreverent treatment of the word. There is nothing meaningless in that holy volume. Each single verse in it sparkles with beauty if we view it in the right light and attentively survey it. It is so here. First, this verse informs us that the little maid's words to her mistress did not pass unheeded. Well, they might have done, humanly speaking, for it would be quite natural for those about her, a mere child, a foreigner in their midst, to have paid no attention unto her remarks. Even had they done so, surely such a statement as she had made must have sounded like foolish boasting. If the best physicians in Syria were helpless in the presence of leprosy, who would credit that a man of another religion and despised Samaria should be able to heal him? But strange as it may seem, her words were heeded. Second, in this we must see the hand of God, the hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord hath made both of them, Proverbs twenty twelve, true alike, both physically and spiritually. Yet how little is this realized today, when the self-sufficiency of man is proclaimed on every side, and the operations of the Most High are so much ignored. The professing Christian is asked, Who maketh thee to differ? 1 Corinthians 4.7 All around us are those who pay no heed to the declaration of Holy Spirit, and who perceive no beauty in Christ that they should desire Him. Who then has given to thee an ear that responds to the truth and an eye that perceives its divine origin? And every real Christian will answer the God of all grace. As it was the Lord who opened the heart of Lydia that she took unto her Greek the things which were spoken, Acts 16, 14, so He caused those about her to attend unto the words of this little maid. Ah, oh, my hearer, make no mistake upon this point. The most faithful sermon from the pulpit falls upon deaf ears unless the Holy Spirit operates, whereas the simplest utterance of a child becomes effectual when God is pleased to so apply the same. Third, this made manifest the effect of the maid's words upon her mistress. She communicated it to another, and this other went in and acquainted the king of the same. This Verse 4 of 2 Kings 5 reveals to us one of the links in the chain that eventually drew Naaman to Elisha and resulted in his healing. It also shows how that our words are heard and often reported to others, thereby both warning and encouraging us of the power of the tongue. This will be made fully manifest in the day to come. Nothing which has been done for God's glory will be lost. When the history of this world is completed, God will make known before an assembled universe what was spoken for Him. Malachi 3.16, Luke 12.3 Finally, we are shown here how God is pleased to make use of little and despised things a maid in captivity, who had supposed her to do service for the Lord? Who would be inclined to listen to her voice? Her age, her nationality, her position were all against her. Yet because she improved her opportunity and bore witness to her mistress, her simple message reached the ears of the King of Syria. The Lord grant us to be faithful wherever he has placed us. And the king of Syria said, Go to, go. And I will send a letter on to the king of Israel. Verse 5. Here also we must see the hand of the Lord. Had he not wrought upon him too, the message had produced no effect on his majesty. Why should that monarch pay any attention to the utterance of a kitchen maid? Ah, my hearer, when God has a design of mercy, He works at both ends of the line. He not only gives the message to the messenger, but He opens the heart of its recipient to heed it. He who bade Philip take a journey into the desert also prepared the Ethiopian eunuch for his approach. Acts to 31 He who overcame Peter's scruples to go unto the Gentiles also inclined Cornelius and his household to be present before God to hear all things that were commanded him of God. Acts 10.33 The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. Proverbs 21.1 Strikingly did that receive illustration here. Yet though God wrought in the instance now before us, it did not please him to remove the king's infirmities. Third, it's misapprehension. Go to, go, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. As will appear in the sequel, the Lord had a reason for suffering the king to act thus. Poor Naaman was now mistreated by the carnal wisdom of his master. The little maid had said nothing about the king of Israel, but had specified the prophet that is in Samaria. It had been much better for the leper to have heeded more closely her directions than had he been spared needless trouble? Yet how true to life is the typical picture here presented? How often is the sinner who has been awakened to his desperate condition wrongly counseled and turned aside to cisterns which hold no water? Rarely does an exercise soul find relief at once. More frequently, his experience is like that of the woman in Mark 5:26 who tried many physicians in vain before she came to Christ or like the prodigal son when he began to be in want and went and joined himself to a citizen of the far country and got nothing better than the husks that the swine did eat Luke 15:14 to 18 ere he sought unto the father and he departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand pieces of gold and ten changes of raiment. 2 Kings five five. It has been computed that the value of these things would be at least seventy thousand dollars or fifteen thousand pounds. The Hebrew maid had said nothing of the need for silver and gold but knowing naught of the grace of God, Naaman was prepared to pay handsomely for his healing. Again we exclaim, "How true to life is this typical picture. How many there are who think the gift of God may be purchased? Acts 8:20: and if not literally, with money, yet by works of righteousness and religious performances. And even where that delusion has been removed, another equally erroneous often takes its place. The idea that a heavenly burdened conscience, a deep sense of personal unworthiness, accompanied by sighs and tears and groans, is the required qualification for applying to Christ and the ground of peace before God. Fatal mistake. Without money and without price, Isaiah 55, 1, excludes all frames, feelings, and experiences as truly as it does the paying of a papish priest to absolve me. Fourth is foil. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, Now I... When this letter is come unto thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. And it came to pass, when the king of Israel read the letter, that he rent his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man doth send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore, consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. Verses 6 and 7. How this made manifest the apostate condition of Israel at that time, and shows why God had moved the Syrians to oppress them. There was some excuse for the king of Syria acting as he did, for he was a heathen. But there was none for the king of Israel. Instead of getting down on his knees and spreading this letter before the Lord, as a later king of Israel did, Isaiah 37:14), he acted like an infidel. Instead of seeing in this appeal an opportunity for Jehovah to display his grace and glory, he thought only of himself. What a contrast was there here between the witness of the little maid and the conduct of the king of Israel. Yet his meanness served as a foil to set off her noble qualities. She was in lowly and distressing circumstances, whereas he was a monarch upon the throne. Yet she was concerned about and had implicit confidence in God and spoke of his prophet. Whereas neither God nor his servant had any place in his mind, some may think from a first reading of verse 7 that the king's language sounds both humble and pious, but a pondering of it indicates it was but the utterance of pride and unbelief. Knowing not the Lord, he saw in this appeal of Ben-Hadad nothing but a veiled threat to humiliate him, and he was filled with fear. Had he sought unto God, his terror had soon been quietened, and a way of relief shown him. But he was a stranger to him, and evidenced no faith even in the idols he worshipped. Yet this made the more illustrious the marvel of the miracle which followed. Perhaps the Christian hearer is tempted to congratulate himself that There is nothing searching for him in verse 7. If so, such complacency may be premature. Are you quite sure, friend, that there has been no parallel in your past conduct to that of this real scheme? Were you never guilty of the thing wherein he failed? When some heavy demand was made upon you, some real test or trial confronted you? Did you never respond by saying, I am not sufficient for this, it is quite beyond my feeble powers? Possibly you imagined that was a pious acknowledgement of your weakness, when in reality it was a voicing of your unbelief. True, the Christian is impotent in himself, so too is the non-Christian. Is then the saint no better off than the ungodly? If the Christian continues impotent, the fault is his. God's grace is sufficient and his strength is made perfect in our weakness. Feeble knees and hands which hang down bring no glory to God. He has bidden us be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might." ephesians 610 then cease imitating this defeatist attitude of Israel's king and be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus second Timothy 2 1 chapter 16 10th miracle in the previous chapter we emphasized the secret operations of God in inclining one and another to pay attention to the message of the little Hebrew maid. He it was who gave the hearing ear to both Naaman's wife and the king of Syria. Perhaps some have remarked, but such was not the case with the king of Israel. No, it was not. For so far from sharing her confidence and cooperating with her effort, He was skeptical and antagonistic. Therein we may perceive God's sovereignty. He does not work in all alike, being absolutely free to do as He pleases. He opens the eyes of some, but leaves others in their blindness. This is God's high and awful prerogative. Therefore hath He mercy on whom He will have mercy, and whom He will, He hardeneth. Romans 9.18 This it is which supplies the key to God's dealings with men and which explains the course of evangelical history. Clearly is that solemn principle exemplified in the chapter before us, and we should be unfaithful as an expositor if we, as so many now do, deliberately ignored it. And it came to pass when the king of Israel had read the letter that he rent his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive? That this man doth send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy Second Kings five seven. So utterly sceptical was Jehoram that he deemed it not worth while to send for Elisha and confer with him. The prophet meant nothing to Israel's unbelieving king, and therefore he slighted him. Perhaps this strikes the hearer as strange, for the previous miracles Elisha had wrought must have been well known. One had thought his restoring of a dead child to life had thoroughly authenticated him as an extraordinary man of God. But did not the Lord Jesus publicly raise a dead man to life, and yet, within a few days, both the leaders of the nation and the common people clamored for his crucifixion? And is it any different in our day? Have we not witnessed providential marvels Divine interpositions both of mercy and judgment, and what effect have they had on our evil generation? Jehoram's conduct is easily accounted for. The carnal mind is enmity against God, Romans 8, 7, and that enmity evidenced itself by slighting his accredited servant. And it was so. When Elisha, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Verse 8. The slighted Elisha pocketed his pride and communicated with the king, rightly concluding that His own feelings were not worth considering where the glory of God was concerned. Thomas Scott wrote, Naaman came into the land of Israel expecting relief from a prophet of the God of Israel, and Elisha would by no means have him go back disappointed, lest he should conclude that Jehovah was like the gods of the nations and as unable to do good or evil as they were. On the contrary, he would have it known that God had a prophet in Israel by whom he performed such cures as none of the heathen prophets, priests, or physicians could effect, and which were far beyond all the power of the mightiest monarchs. End of quote. The counsel of the Lord it shall stand whatever devices were in Jehoram's heart to the contrary. Proverbs 19.21 The righteous are bold as a lion. Elisha not only rebuked the king for his unbelieving fears, but summarily gave him instructions concerning Naaman. However unwelcome might be his interference, that deterred him not. The real servant of God does not seek to please men, but rather... To execute the commission he has received from on high. It is true that the prophets, like the apostles, were endowed with extraordinary powers, and therefore they are not in all things models for us today. Nevertheless, the gospel minister is not to cringe before anyone, still less is he to take orders from human authorities. It is his duty to denounce unbelief and to proclaim that the living God is ever ready to honor those who honor him and work wonders in response to genuine faith. As God overruled the king of Syria's misdirecting of Naaman, so he now overcame the skepticism of the king of Israel by moving him to respond to Elisha's demand, thereby demonstrating that the words of the little maid were no idle boast, and her confidence in God no misplaced one.
1: So Naaman
0: came with his forces, and with his chariot, and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. Verse 9. Naaman, before the prophet's abode, may be regarded as a picture of the natural man in his sins, not yet stripped of his self-righteousness, nor aware that he is entirely dependent on divine mercy, having no title or claim to receive any favor at God's hand. The The fact that he was seated in a chariot mitigated his terrible condition, not one iota. No matter how rich the apparel that covered his body, though it might hide from human view his loathsome disease, it availed nothing for the removal of it. And as the valuables He had brought with Him could not procure His healing, neither can the cultivation of the most noble character nor the performance of the most praiseworthy conduct in human esteem merit the approbation of God. Salvation is wholly of divine grace and cannot be earned by the creature. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Titus 3, 5 and 6 However much it might be in accord with the principles and sentiments which regulate fallen human nature, There was surely something most incongruous in the scene now before us. Here was a poor creature stricken with a most horrible disease, and yet we behold him seated in a chariot. Here was one smitten by a malady no physician could heal, surrounded by official pomp. Here was one entirely dependent upon the divine bounty yet whose horses were laden with silver and gold, do we not behold in him then a representation not only of the natural man in his sins, but as filled with a sense of his own importance and bloated with pride? Such is precisely the case with each of us by nature. Totally depraved though we be Alienated from God, criminals condemned by His holy law, our minds enmity against Him, dead in trespasses and sins. Yet, until a miracle of grace is wrought within and the tumor of our pride is lanced, we are puffed up with self righteousness, refuse to acknowledge we deserve naught but eternal punishment, and imagine we are entitled to God's favorable regard. Not only does Naaman here fitly portray the self-importance of the natural man while unregenerate, but as hinted previously, he also adumbrates the fact that the sinner imagines he can gain God's approbation and purchase his salvation. The costly things which the Syrian have brought with him were obviously designed to ingratiate himself in the eyes of the prophet and pay for his cure. The following such a policy was, of course, quite natural, and therefore it types out what is the native thought of every man. He supposes that a dutiful regard of religious performances will obtain for him the favorable notice of God, that his fastings and prayers Church attendance and contributing to its upkeep will more than counterbalance his demerits. Such an insane idea is by no means confined to Buddhists and Romanists, but is common to the whole human family. It is for this reason we have to be assured, By grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Spiritually speaking, every man is a bankrupt, a pauper, and salvation is entirely gratis, a matter of charity. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2.14 This is true alike of the most cultured and the thoroughly illiterate. No amount of education or erudition fits one for the apprehension of spiritual things. Man is blind and his eyes must be opened before he can perceive either the glory of God and His righteous claims or His own wretchedness and deep needs. Not until a miracle of grace humbles his heart will he betake himself onto the throne of grace in His true character. Not until the Holy Spirit works effectually within him will he come to Christ as an empty-handed beggar. It is recorded that a famous artist met with a poor tramp and was so impressed with his woe-begone appearance and condition that he felt he would make an apt subject for a drawing. He gave the tramp a little money in his card and promised him a sovereign if he would call at his house on the following day and sit while he drew his picture. The next morning the tramp arrived, but the artist's intention was defeated. The tramp had washed and shaved and so spruced himself that he was scarcely recognizable. Similarly does the natural man act when he first attempts to respond to the gospel call. Instead of coming to the Lord just as he is in all his want and woe, As one who is lost and undone, he supposes he must first make himself more presentable by a process of reformation. Thus he busies himself in amending his ways, improving his conduct and performing pious exercises, unaware that Christ came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance, to take their place in the dust before him. What we have just been dwelling upon receives striking illustration in the chapter before us. Instead of sending Naaman direct to Elisha, Ben-Hadad gave him a letter of introduction unto the king of Israel, and instead of casting himself on the mercy of the prophet, he sent a costly fee to pay for the healing of his commander-in-chief. We have seen the futility of his letter, the effect it had upon its recipient. Now we are to behold how his lavish outlay of wealth produced no more favorable response from Elisha. For Naaman had to learn the humiliating truth that where divine grace is concerned, The millionaire stands on precisely the same level as the pauper. Fifth, its requirement. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. Verse 10. As the representative of him who deigned to wash the feet of his disciples, the minister of the gospel must not decline the meanest service nor despise the poorest person. Elisha has set us an example of both, for he scorned not to minister to the physical needs of Elijah, washing his hands, 2 Kings 3.11. And refused not to help the impoverished widow, second kings four two on the other hand, the servant of Christ is to be no sycophant, toadying to those of affluence, nor is he to feed the pride of the self-important. from this sequel, it is evident Naaman considered that he, as a great man was entitled to deference, and probably felt that the prophet ought to consider
1: a favor or honor
0: was now being
1: shown him. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats.